places. Everyone. We're now broadcasting. Roll the tape in. Three, two. A new audio drama. Appaloosa Radio is where stories come alive. Magnetic Woman A Lies and Detection Episode Jonas Interviews Juliet Stewart Points Hello, I'm Jonas Chartagoro a government polygraph examiner with over 25 years of experience. I am also a former New York police officer. And... This time I'll be interviewing Juliet Stewart Points. There are people who literally are magnetic, who wherever they go or whatever they do, they draw others to them. My guest for this episode is a genuinely magnetic person. I believe it is because of her personal magnetism, that the Communist Party came to flourish in the United States during the years before World War II. I now believe that without the presence and the work of Juliet Stewart Points, the Communist left in the U.S. would have remained a sorry collection of grumblers, malcontents, complainers, dreamers, and cranks. She was the co-founder of the American Communist Party. She brought discipline, focus, organization, and key people to it. Much later when she began her secret career as an active Soviet spy, she proved herself to be the most effective KGBGRU spy working in the Americas. The Encyclopedia Britannica lists her as Suffragist Feminist Trade Union Organizer Socialist Politician Political Activist communist, and spy. To that impressive list, I would add that Joseph Stalin called her an enemy of the Soviet state, and personally ordered her execution. There is a quick knock of the door and then Juliet Points opens the door herself. Hello, Jonas. I am Juliet Points. Jonas walks across the room and shakes her extended hand. His comment is, am I interviewing her, or is she, interviewing me? Good to meet you and welcome. Come have a seat. Very impressive. I did not know that government polygraph examiners have their own offices in ritzy Manhattan high-rises. There must be more money in uncovering lies than I thought. Well, now I'm retired and I cater to my private contracts. Some pay quite well. I do these interviews with historical figures more as an avocation than as my business. So, I'm your pastime? 
Your dalliance? Your flirtation fob. Now you are playing with me. I don't believe that I have ever used the word fob. You're right. Who needs a pocket watch with its fob when we have smart watches on our arms that tell us everything we have ever wanted to know? Mine was a different time. Our women in Local 25 of the International Ladies Garment Union were making shirt waists. No one today would know what they are. To be truthful, I have wanted to interview you for a very long time. Your story is one of immense historical importance, but it is not well known. I believe that it was your work that created the so-called golden era of Soviet spy activity. It was a network that you personally developed that stole the atom bomb secrets. That sounds like a compliment, but I'm not sure how to respond. I have never felt as if I were the leader of anything, certainly not anything historic. I felt like I was always dealing with real human problems as I directly encountered them. Women needed the vote. They needed freedom and protection from husbands who savagely beat them. They needed the opportunity to do more than just deliver 10 or 12 children. I taught women to read. I taught the importance of the vote. I advocated for contraception. Just practical stuff. Before we go too far in the interview, I have to ask you about your last name. There is a story about why I changed the spelling of my last name. The sound always remained the same, points. Back while I was running for political office, you may remember that in 1926 I ran for the New York State Comptroller office on the Workers' Party, a reporter thought he was making a joke when he wrote a headline, points make some points. Ha ha ha. Well, his headline made me angry. I decided to change the spelling of my last name to, P-O-Y-N-T-Z. It sounds exactly the same, as in scoring points during a basketball game. When I first saw the spelling, I did not know what nationality it was. I have been accused of being everything. Slavic, Greek, German, Jewish. But I am none of those. I am a Nebraska girl from Middle America. Did I remember that you are a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution? Yes. That is true. My ancestors served under General Horatio Gates during the Battle of Saratoga. I am as American as they come. Did I also remember that you were an excellent athlete? Yes, that is also true. I was a wrestler in college. Barnard College celebrated an Olympics festival each year, and the college's women were encouraged to participate in athletic events. I chose wrestling. I had hoped that they would let us wrestle nude like the Greeks originally did, but alas, Barnard was too Victorian. So, we wore beating costumes. Still, no men were allowed to watch us. Very strict. Kept the doors to the gymnasium tightly locked. Were you a good wrestler? Never lost a match. Not once over my four years competing. Are you still involved in athletics? In New York City, I live at the Central YWCA. There I play basketball on a woman's team, and I swim nearly every day. I believe, as the Greeks did, a healthy mind depends on a healthy body. I understand that you are also a vegetarian. You do not eat meat. I avoid red meats and the heavy starches. And, anyone who has been around me knows that I do not tolerate tobacco in my presence. It often makes the men very angry. Many of them smoke cigarettes and cigars, and they want to puff all the time. However, not around me. Go outside. Not here. You entered Barnard College when you were just 16, and there you excelled. I remembered reading a letter that one of your Barnard classmates wrote about you. She said that you were marked by your incredible intellect, your poise under pressure, and your charisma. 
Sounds like one of my sorority sisters. We all stayed incredibly close even though we were separated by our political ideologies, and by the accumulated wealth of our various husbands. Of those early years, what experiences do you know see as the most memorable? Without doubt, it was the time that I spent as an agent for the U.S. Immigration Commission, living primarily in Chicago. I remember telling a friend that I had found my place among lowest of the low, among the most delightful and engaging immigrants, individuals who had nothing except their dreams. I believe that my whole career has been devoted to helping such people. To give them dignity, good health, and a successful life. Were you then in 1912 a socialist? Yes, of the most dreadful kind, very anti-capitalist, pro-worker. I sense a religious streak in you. Well, Jonas. I am an avowed atheist. I do not accept divine purpose in human lives. Still, ethically I am a Christian. I still read St. Francis of Assisi and I cry. Kindness is the highest of human qualities. Earlier you mentioned running for political office. In 1926, you ran for New York State Controller on the Workers' Party. It sounds like a job for an accountant. What made you seek such an esoteric office? The state comptroller manages the state's debt. That is, the comptroller issues New York state bonds. To sell bonds to investors, the state of New York grants its bondholders certain privileges, most notably buying state bonds allows one to defer or cancel taxes. Jonas, let me say that again. If a company or an individual bought New York state bonds, then they would be exempt from paying other taxes. In New York state, the system was rigged. If someone or some company bought $10,000 in bonds, then they would be free from paying much more than that in other taxes. It could be as much as $100,000. So, the bond pays interest, a mere pittance, and grants the purchaser exemption from many thousands in taxes. Go where the money is. Go where the money is if you want to have real power. The state comptroller sounds like a nothing job. That is, until you realize how much money really is controlled through bonds. So. You were running to get filthy rich. No silly, I was running to expose the corrupt system and to make these millionaires and their companies pay their fair share. We didn't win, of course, but we had some really big crowds. Then, two years later, you ran for New York Attorney General. That was really about drawing attention to the coming ban on the political activities of the Workers' Party. We were banned from the ballot. We were banned from holding rallies. We were limited in what we could print in our newspapers. Remember, Calvin Coolidge had come to power in the Red Scare of 1919, and he was determined to ban all communist activities. Both Al Smith and Franklin Roosevelt went along with the ban. So, I ran for attorney general to publicize what was happening. I understand that during that political campaign, you also lost your teaching job at Barnard College. Yes, but I was busy organizing. It was probably for the best. Busy organizing? Do you mean your work with the friends of the Soviet Union? Yes. We had over 200 branches, all around the country. Our weekly newspaper, our magazines, our lecture tours. I managed a staff of about 40 full-time people. It was a very busy time. Who sponsored the friends of the Soviet Union? Until 1927, it was funded entirely by membership fees. Then in 1927, as part of the international effort, the Soviet Union began funding the organization. Was that when Soviet agents from the GRU began using the Friends of the Soviet Union as a front for their spying activities? About then. When did you secretly travel to the Soviet Union? 
My trip began in January 1929. It took almost four weeks to get to Moscow. Quite an adventure. Using a false passport, I traveled to Montreal then then to Italy, then to Turkey and finally to Moscow. Did you travel alone? No, my mentor George Minkoff was with me for the whole trip. He had traveled to Moscow a couple of years earlier and understood how the system worked. How long did you stay in Moscow? About six months. I attended the so-called spy college. Then, I was given an assignment that took me to China. I was in Shanghai for a couple of months. I think it was all a part of the training that they were giving me. Once they felt that I had the skills I needed, I was sent back to the United States. I traveled back to San Francisco under my own passport. No questions were ever asked about how I had left the country. Back in New York, I told my friends that I had been in China on a journalistic assignment. I stopped working for the Friends of the Soviet Union. I spent all of my time developing networks of spies. Did your handlers give you a specific target for your espionage work? Yes. They wanted me to build up networks of agents who had roles developing new technologies and in the basic sciences, particularly in chemistry, electromagnetism and physics. If my count is correct, I believe that you developed around 20 separate spy networks. Something like that. I feel a need to insert an editorial comment for our listeners. The Soviet spy networks that Juliet Stewart points developed reached into the very highest levels of the Roosevelt administration, into the Department of State, into the Commerce Department's Industrial Board for Technology, into the Treasury and the Justice Departments, into the very top secret Bell Labs and into the aircraft industry. Of course, they reached deep into many university campuses. It staggers me when I think of the sheer volume of information that left for the Soviet Union. Needless to say, she did not act alone. She had many minions and associates. Yet, as I said earlier, she was a magnetic woman. Honest, diligent, caring, intelligent people joined with her to commit treason just because she asked them to. She did not pay them. She did not cajole them. She did not dupe them. She never used torture. She simply smiled and asked them to help her. One example that comes to my mind is Julius Rosenberg. Well before he became involved in the ring that stole the atomic bomb secrets, he had agreed to work as a menial quality control inspector in an army supply depot to be in a position to provide the Soviet Union detailed information about America's armaments. Is it true that you recruited Julius Rosenberg? No. I did not recruit Julius Rosenberg. I recruited Ethel Greenglass who later married Julius Rosenberg. I never met Julius.
Did you make a second secret trip to Moscow in June 1936? Yes. George Minkoff told me that I had been ordered to Moscow for consultations. Did this trip feel different to you? Very different. For one thing, Germany was rearming under Hitler. And I knew that several thousand German communists had been recently executed. I had also heard rumblings about the purges that were taking place in the USSR. I knew that I had been successful in my assignments, but everything was very unsettled. How was the trip? Compared to the first one, it was a breeze. I took a luxury steamship to France and then a plane directly to Moscow. I traveled under my own name with my own passport. In Moscow, I was warmly greeted and given the use of an apartment. Did you also meet someone who was special to you? Yes, one of my lovers. Red Army Corps Commander Vitov Putna. A military man. Yes. Very manly, also a genuine intellectual. A gentle, caring, ferocious warrior. What happened to your lover while you were in Moscow? The fourth night that we were together, he told me to get back to America as soon as I could. He told me that he had learned that an arrest warrant had been issued for him. He was accused of maintaining contacts with Leon Trotsky. My lover told me that he would most likely be executed. He told me to flee and to flee quickly. I immediately went to see George Minkoff and told him that I had to get back to the States quickly, I had just received a cable saying that my mother was dying. He pulled some strings and I was on a plane the next afternoon. Was your mother really dying? She had died three years before. What happened to your lover? He was arrested, tortured, gave false testimony, tried in a phony trial and executed. He was one of the high-ranking officers in the so-called Moscow trial of the Trotskyist anti-Soviet military organization. When Juliet Points returned to New York City, she found that her life was very different. Previous friends and colleagues no longer spoke to her. She believed that she was being followed. She no longer received her monthly stipend from her Soviet handler. She had moved back into an apartment in the women-only building operated by the YWCA. On June 3, 1937, the building's clerk knocked on her apartment door and told her that she had a phone call. She walked down the stairs and picked up the phone. She said that it was a pleasant call from an old friend. A half hour later, she walked down the stairs again and told the desk clerk that she was going for a walk. She wore a colorful scarf over her head and comfortable walking shoes. She would never be seen again.
The Soviet defector, former spymaster Major General Walter Krivitsky told the FBI that the date was an important clue to her disappearance. He noted that Juliet Point's lover Vitov Putna was publicly brought into a Moscow court for his phony show trial on June 11, 1937, just a week after her disappearance. General Krivitsky said that the GRU was afraid of Juliet's ability to make waves if she learned that her lover was to be executed on Stalin's orders. They decided to kidnap and murder her before she could meet with the press. We know that both Whitaker Chambers and Elizabeth Bentley defected, in large part, because they knew that Juliet Points had been murdered, and they were fearful that the same fate would befall them. Whitaker Chambers said that a Soviet agent whom he identified as Joseph Peters and Juliet's mentor and possible lover, George Minkoff were tasked with planning the abduction and murder. Chambers was certain that the actions had been approved at the very highest level in Moscow. Elizabeth Bentley told the FBI that Juliet Points had several times eaten dinner at Bentley's apartment, and Bentley found her delightful. Bentley later wrote, with a more acidic tone, that Mrs. Glazer often acted like a little sexual tart, teasing the men by kissing them or rubbing up against them. Mrs. Glazer was Juliet Point's married name which she used when it was convenient. Elizabeth Bentley said that Jacob Golos told her, more than once, that Juliet Point's was a traitor to the Soviet cause and was, thus, executed. Biographer Benjamin Gitlow provides a more detailed account of her disappearance. He writes that her longtime friend, and former lover, Shachno Epstein called her and asked if she wanted to go for a walk with him in Central Park. They walked arm in arm, laughing and joking with each other. Then, he led her to a side path where a large, black limousine was parked. Suddenly two large men jumped out and grabbed her, pushing her into the vehicle. Researchers disagree. The Springs Audio Theater is a creative collaboration. We do know that she was an immediate threat to Joe Stalin and her ordered her murder. Through webcast radio experiences. This is Jonas Chartagoro. I'll see you next time on Lies and Detection.